Hey guys, Peter here from the future. So a little under two years ago, I was like, hey, brief hiatus, we'll be back in the new year. And uh, the more astute of you may have noticed, we did not come back in the new year. And in fact, have not updated the feed since then until now. And this is not even a real update, if I'm being honest. You might have seen the length and been like, oh, they're back, they've done another episode. And that would be false. We have not done another episode. Instead, uh, about, God, I want to say like a year ago now, someone reached out and was like, hey, can I interview you for my podcast, Freelancers? And Freelancers is a podcast about freelance photographers, freelance, lens, freelancers, it's a cute name. I'm a fan of your podcast and I'd love to chat to you about your life as a creative professional, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you've been listening to the show, this may shock you, but I will very rarely pass an opportunity to talk about myself. I like being on podcasts and... I really miss talking about myself every week and talking to SJ every week, obviously. But uh, <laughs> again, in, in the spirit of the honesty of the show, I miss talking about myself every week. I did a lot of self-reflection and learning and blah, blah, blah. And normally this wouldn't be news, except during the interview, we kind of touched on what happened to being honest with my ex and why it ended and how it ended and why we haven't heard from me in over a year. And so I asked the hosts if I could put that episode up here as a podcast and they said yes. So after this rambling introduction, you will get to hear me discussing my life for the year after being honest with my ex ended. And of course, it's been a year since then because everything takes a very long time. So uh, I think it took like six months for it to go up and then I sent it to SJ for approval to put on here and she said yes. And then I ended up doing a whole bunch of stuff. So the interview that you're going to hear is already horrendously out of date. Like haven't listened to it in a few months, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of the like what I'm up to now stuff is just not current at all. But it is still more current than the last episode of Being Honest with Max. So I thought I'd put it up here as a kind of like, here's what happened to the show. Here's a little bit of what I'm up to now and hope that you enjoy it. So if you've been sitting on the edge of your seat for almost two years now wondering what Peter's been up to, uh, here you go. If you want to know what SJ's been up to, the main thing she's worked on over the last two years is the Big Feels Club, which you can find in the show notes below. I'll put a link to the Big Feels Club. I actually ended up, since we ended the show, I really don't talk to SJ nearly as much as I would like because we're both just very busy people. So I ended up subscribing to the Big Feels Club just to find out what she was up to, just to keep up to date with SJ myself. And I really recommend it. She and Graham Panther, which is such a cool name, updated, I think every week, maybe every two weeks, with just kind of like what they're up to and mechanisms for coping with big feels. And it's really interesting. As well as that, she did a podcast that you probably have heard of. It's called No Feeling Is Final. And she is either up for or she's won, I can never remember, some huge awards. So if you want to listen to SJ's award-winning or possibly award-nominated podcast, No Feeling Is Final, there is a link to that in the show notes. It's not my style of podcast, but it's very good. I mean, she's won slash been nominated for, I really should have looked this up before recording, a huge award. So definitely check that out. And if you want to know what I've been up to, uh, basically just Jellybean Games for a long time. So just go to jellybean.games and you can see what I've been working on. I really do miss this show and I miss the interaction with the audience and the community. And I'm sorry that we ended so abruptly and kind of didn't say goodbye. We might come back someday, it seems unlikely, but hey, never say never. I miss doing it. I miss being that close with SJ and I miss talking about myself every week. So here is an extended interview of me talking about myself. Enjoy. One, two, three. Clap. Right. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> this is the first time it has worked, actually. Yeah, only took us 13 episodes. You're listening to Freelancers. My name's Adele. And I'm Mike. We are two creatives documenting the process from being an employee to becoming independent in real time. Welcome to Freelancers, episode 13. Hi, Adele. Hi. And today we have, I'd say, my favorite Australian on the show, Mr. Peter C. Hayward. Peter is a big podcaster, and I've come across him through one of my favorite podcasts of all time, Being Honest with My Ex. He has also been recording for two other shows, and a few of his other projects include writing erotica and managing board game companies. Hey, Peter, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you going today? Pretty good. Very good. So it's been almost exactly a year since your last update where you said you're on a hiatus until the next year. Any chances <laughs> it's going to be the next year of 2019? Hopefully. We're, we're... So... As you know, if you listen to that episode, I had a small baby and having a small baby turns out is very, very time consuming. 
to the point where it was hard to justify the the getting back together and recording once a week and then spending the hours on editing. So one of the reasons we kind of slowed down is just or slowed down, stopped for a full year, as you've pointed out, is that mm-hmm. I had a kid and kids are very, very time consuming. And it's much harder to justify, you know, 10 hours a week on something when you could be spending those 10 hours with a new human who you've created and is trying to grow into a full person. Uh, another reason is just that the last few episodes were sort of, I mean, okay, so there, there was an episode where we did a live show and I was completely out of line and then when we next recorded, I had jumbled up the facts in my head and accused SJ of being out of line. And I was just completely wrong. Like I was flat out wrong about it. And I attacked one of my best friends and I was a real, I don't know how much swearing you're allowed on this, but I was a real swear word about the whole thing. Sure. Go ahead. I I was a cunt. Like I was an absolute (laughs) cunt to SJ. And that wasn't fun for her. Obviously that wasn't fun for me. And we put that out there because the title of the show is Being Honest with My Ex. So I wanted to, you know, put the honest interaction that we had in which I was just terrible and she was just blatantly attacked despite doing nothing wrong. And once we put that out there, we got a lot of, you know, people who were very upset. And so we kind of realized that we'd probably have to do another episode just kind of breaking it down. And we'd always said that we wanted to do Being Honest with My Ex as long as it was fun. And I can tell you unequivocally at that point, it was not fun. It was not a fun thing to do. So really any excuse to not get back to it, we both kind of seized upon. And so The Baby and SJ got another show picked up by the ABC, which did very well. And really, yeah, any reason not to do it, we we seized upon and thus didn't do it. So we've been talking about kind of getting back into it. But if we do, it'll be with no schedule. It'll be when we feel like recording. It'll be the kind of fun, pleasant interaction we always wanted it to be and not this deep, emotionally scarring, you know, constant personal growth thing that it was, which is maybe what people liked about it. I don't know. But uh, yeah, we, we, we do want to do it. We both really miss doing the show and miss talking and hanging out more often. But we don't want to torture ourselves to make it happen. I mean, I've listened to that episode where you accused SJ, but I didn't think it was in a malicious way. And I mean, you were pretty chill about it, at least in my head. Did she think it was malicious? You're, you're being very nice. <laughs> no, it was it was never malicious. But, you know, if you accidentally hit someone with your car, you haven't not hit them with a car, you know? It was more that we have certain standards for the people that we hang out with and the people that we are. And I fell way below those standards for both of us, I'm pretty sure. And it just, it wasn't, it was an unpleasant interaction that was then recorded for all time and put out on the internet. Mm. And I mean, one of the reasons I'd really like to start doing the show again is because I really, really did try to use that as an opportunity for growth and change the way that I behave and the way that I conduct myself, especially when I'm tired and upset. And I would like to not have the last kind of snapshot of my life be that. Yeah. But it's it's hard to make it a priority. True. I, I appreciate your defense. Uh, I don't think it's warranted. <laughs> All right. We'll let it up to SJ to decide. Yeah, exactly. So apart from the podcast, you've had some pretty interesting career progression. And do you want me to take a stab at the recap? Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) Okay. So in my head, you started writing Erotica. It was like your first gig. You did it part-time to full-time. Then you started the podcast with SJ, started one board game company, moved to Canada, started (laughs) a family and another board game company. And then you still have a plan of writing sitcoms in the back of your mind. That's, yeah, that's pretty accurate. So let's go all the way back to when I met SJ. So I met SJ in 2010, I'm pretty sure. 2009, maybe. Yeah, I met SJ in 2009, almost exactly 10 years ago. And at the time that I met SJ, I was working uh, in a call center for American Express. Very kind of standard job job. I would answer the call and help people with transactions, etc. And on the side, just for fun more than anything, I was writing erotica and smut and porn and all kinds of naughty things. And as I was doing that, some people asked if they could have custom stories and I charged them money. And I was like, oh, that's a nice little bit of pocket change. I charged, I did the math recently. I charged literally less than 10% of what I charge now. It's such a, less than 5%, I think even. I really charge quite a lot now. Uh, But I never thought, you know, it it was a couple hundred bucks now and again. It was not enough to quit my job. And then I realized that I was not following my dream. So my dream is and has always been to write sitcoms. That's all I want to do in the world. And I wasn't doing it. So I quit my job at the call center and got a job on set in Australian TV straight away. I I used all my contacts and I got a job 
and it was I, I lasted three days and it was the worst three days of my entire life I was completely unhappy. I was leaving house at 5 a.m. and getting home at midnight and not sleeping and riding my moped and dealing with a awful, awful co-worker whose, whose life goal was to make me quit. And she succeeded and she thought that I got the job because I was a man and I didn't deserve it. And so she made my life a living hell and it was work that I wasn't particularly good at. So maybe she was not wrong in thinking I didn't deserve to be there. And I just hated it so much. On the fourth day, instead of getting to set at 6 a.m., I accidentally slept in until 11. And at that point, I was like, I am done. I'm not going mm. in, not going to do it. But I'd quit my job and needed income. And so SJ actually found a Reddit thread of someone who made a full-time living writing erotica. And I thought, oh, I write erotica. And it turned out that she made most of her money from selling her smut on Kindle. So where I'd just been doing commissions, she started a, uh, a self-publishing system and was doing that. So I started putting my books on Kindle and within about three months, I was making a full-time living. That was very exciting. So all of my income at that point was coming through erotica and I was still occasionally doing commissions. About a year later, Amazon uh, stopped allowing my kind of smut and just suddenly my income disappeared overnight, but I had enough of a fan base that I was able to launch a Patreon and I still have that Patreon. And that Patreon is now the majority of my reliable income. Even to this day, was it eight, eight years later or whatever, seven years later. So while I, while I was doing this erotica, I realized I could do it a few days a month. And I spent the rest of my time trying to put on some live shows and they never really took off. And then SJ and I had a big explosive breakup. And I realized that I was putting all this time into live shows that were still not sitcoms. And I really wanted to make sitcoms. So I, after reading an amazing post called The Procrastination Matrix by WakeBitWhy.com, and if you haven't read it, it is genuinely, I think, one of the best pieces of writing on the entire internet. It's changed my entire life. It's changed many people's lives. It's just really, really good at making you realize what you're not doing. <laughs> After reading that, I realized that I, I wasn't writing sitcoms and I wanted to go to the US where sitcoms are actually made, unlike Australia. Uh, I'm sorry to, to break your heart about Australia, but we don't really make much TV. And so I packed up and tried to move to the US. But it turns out it's very, just like it's very hard to get into Australia, it's very hard to get into the US. And I wasn't able to. And so I thought, you know what? I need an in. So I'd spent the last few months kind of noodling around with board games because it was uh, it was not sitcoms. And apparently anything that wasn't sitcoms is what I was most passionately interested in. And so I started a board game company. And I started publishing board games with the intent being to like build it up to such a point that I could use it as a way to get into the US, to get a US visa. And Toronto, I don't know if you know this, Toronto is one of the board game capitals of the world. Uh, some of the most famous board game designers live here. There's a bunch of companies based here. And so I moved to Toronto and started a board game company and started a podcast with SJ because that was also not sitcom writing. And apparently that's the only thing I can do. And so I met Roxy, who I'm now married to, and we have a little baby called Henry and basically did everything in the world that I could that wasn't sitcoms. However... The happy ending is that in the last few months, I've started actually taking sitcom writing classes and I've had one of my shows put on as part of a class show. And I just yesterday finished a whole sitcom draft and I'm actually, actually writing sitcoms. And so the time that I was spending on podcasts and some of the time I was spending on board games, I've now reassigned to looking after a tiny human baby and writing sitcoms. So the plan is still to eventually write sitcoms. It just took me a very, very long time to get there. And what is it about sitcoms that you like so much? Um, it's hard to say. I, I've, always, I've always been fascinated by the structure of comedy. And that's a weird thing to say, but I'm really always interested in the way that jokes are broken down and stuff like uh, the rule of three is that you repeat something three times. The first time sets it up. The second time establishes a pattern. And the third time subverts the pattern. And there's something in the human brain where we just find that inherently very funny. And so once you start looking for the rule of three, you will see it everywhere. And sitcom is a form of writing, which I've always done ever since I was a kid, where it's very rigidly structured. Like every sitcom episode, every sitcom premise has this real structure to it. And I've, I just find that really fascinating. But I think more than anything, it's just that I like watching them. Like they are my medium of choice. I would, I would rather watch a sitcom than almost anything else, movies, dramas, anything else I'd, I'd rather watch a sitcom and what is your favorite sitcom my favorite right now is definitely brooklyn 99 which if you haven't seen it's it's very good it's just perfectly structured and all the characters are hilarious and it's got the right amount of heart and jokes and running jokes and it's by a man called michael Schur. so my previous favorite show was the office the u.s version of the office which i just adored it really went downhill 
later seasons. But uh, Michael Schur started as a writer for The Office. And if you know the show, Dwight's cousin Mose is actually played by Michael Schur. He went, he left The Office to co-create Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. And then after Parks and Recreation, co-created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And then while Brooklyn Nine-Nine's been running, he started a new show called The Good Place. I've seen that one. Isn't it great? Yeah, it is. Yeah. This one man is responsible for such a large proportion of amazing current sitcoms or amazing sitcoms of the last 10 years. And I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place are just the absolute peak of what he's done so far. So I'm really excited to see whatever show he comes up with next. Janet is yeah. uh, <laughs> is, is my favourite character on that show. Uh-huh. Uh, as well as that, I've always been a fan of British sitcoms. That's how I got into The Office because I watched the British one. But there's a little British Welsh, uh, English Welsh show called Gavin and Stacey which it only went for three seasons, but it's just perfect. Like, it's just three, it's like 18 episodes. So the entire run is less than a single season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but it is the most charming, delightful, lovely, lovable show. And if, if that was still running, that would definitely be my first. But they, they, they closed it with this little perfect storyline, and I absolutely love that show. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to clarify, what's your opinion on Laugh Track? So Laugh Tracks are... I mean, pe- people really, people hate them. I, I don't. I, I have no issue with the two formats of sitcom, which is single cam, stuff like The Office or Parks and Rec or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and multicam, which is, in quotes, filmed in front of a live audience. And back in the day, they used to actually be filmed in front of a live audience. And I think whenever possible, they try to. But if you're trying to do more complex stuff, like How I Met Your Mother, I don't know if you've seen that one, but... That one I actually have. As long as it was still viable for me, that the quality was good enough that I didn't mind the laugh track... That was fine, but this equation changed during season four and then I stopped. Well, I think it was around season four, maybe a little bit earlier, where they stopped filming in front of a live audience because they wanted to do so many complex things with like jumping back and forth. And the whole point of filming in front of a live audience is that, you know, they can follow the show like it's a play and you can't do that when you have as many flashbacks and flash forwards and uh, imagination sequences as How I Met Your Mother has. So they stopped filming in front of a live audience, but they kept the laugh track. And so that that's the most common use of laugh track when they want to film in front of a live audience, but they can't for logistical reasons. What do you mean film in front of a live audience? There are actually people watching the set? Yeah, yeah. So in How I Met Your Mother, the, the seat in the bar where they sit, we don't know what's on that wall because they never show it because that's where the, the literal audience would sit. And so they would be watching it like it was a play. And so the, the laughter that you hear is the actual live laughter of, of people watching it in real time. Everyone who has ever been to a shoot knows that it gets so tedious after four hours when you're reshooting every little scene 10 times. How can it be funny the 10th time? Well, that's part of the challenge of that kind of show is that they spend two days rehearsing so that they can get the entire half hour filmed in about an hour's time. They don't do retake, retake, retake. They'll try to do every scene anywhere between two and five times, but they'll have a bunch of lines prepared so that they can switch up the lines from, from take to take so that the audience is still surprised. So whatever, whatever line you laugh at, that might have been the third time that they did a different line for that, or that might have been the original. And yeah, they'll, they'll try to get it done in about, let's say, let's say 60 to 120 minutes in about an hour to two hours so that it, it does remain fresh. And while they're taking down one set and putting up another one, the audience gets food and there's stand-up comedians there to entertain them. And I'm, I'm watching through Everywhere's Raymond at the moment, which is a very famous uh, sitcom from the 90s and thousands. And that one is genuinely filmed in front of a live audience. There's no flashbacks. There's no cutaways. It's all scene, 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 scene. And they actually would film the scene in front of a live audience, move on to the next scene, film that one, move on to the next scene, film that one. And so all the laughs that you hear, or most of the laughs that you hear, are the actual audience laughing in real time at Ray Romano and the rest of the cast. I mean, oh. I wouldn't know if you... If you're just joking, no, no, this is this is serious. This is <laughs> this seems impossible. This, this, this is the uh, this is the area in which I want to work. I'm very serious about comedy. <laughs> All right, were you thinking about making sitcom podcast, or was it all just like sitcom sitcoms? So at the moment, I'm simultaneously working on some shows to pitch to Canadian production companies and US production companies, and I want to start doing some little uh, sitcom podcasts. So the ones that I'm trying to pitch are more stuff that's in the zeitgeist. So there's one about a uh, trans father because my husband Roxy's trans and he's a father, and there's one about an erotica writer because I was an erotica writer, and so they they're kind of based on real things and they're more grounded. And then the sitcom podcasts that I want to do are like sci-fi and fantasy and kind of otherworldly kind of stuff. So that's one of the podcasts that is in the works. 
that you're planning on releasing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully. I, I, I'm trying to make sure I don't、um, fill my time with so much stuff that I don't have time to be a parent or a husband or run a company. <laughs> yeah. So, when it comes to having a child, how difficult is it actually? And when you're freelancing while having a child, how is that like? So, having a kid, everyone tells you you will sleep less and you'll have less time. And those things are just completely true. Yes, those are, those are accurate statements. Roxy is breastfeeding Henry.、Uh, that's the name of my son, Henry. And because he's being breastfed, it doesn't keep him full enough all night. So, he wakes up during the night because he he's hungry. He needs to feed several times during the night. And sometimes I'll actually sleep in a different bed just so I can actually occasionally get a full night's sleep. But Roxy, Never has that opportunity. Roxy has to sleep with the baby. And so I'll, I'll take him in the morning so that Roxy can get a few hours sleep while the sun is up. But yeah, the main thing that it impacts is just how much sleep you get and the quality of your sleep. And Henry's in daycare now. So he goes from to daycare for most of the day. And I have to take him, which means I need to get up at 7 30. But if I'm also taking care of him at night and he just, for whatever reason, doesn't want to sleep, I might be up with him until 1 a.m. I will try to get to sleep. It'll take me a bit of time. I'll wake up in time to get him to daycare in the morning. When you have a little human who relies on you for everything, you, you can't just leave the house. you know? There's no like, oh, I'm just going to go out. Like, I, I, you, you two and most people listening at home, if you wanted to, right now, you could walk outside and go to a local park and read a book. Or you could go to the shops and buy some peanut butter. Or you could ride your bike around for a while. And without a lot of coordination, Roxy and I just cannot do that. For, for a long time, this kid needs to be watched. Every hour of the day because he's still learning how to be alive and how to be a human. And I work from home. And that means that, like, if, if there's a little baby crying, I find it quite hard to, to concentrate because, you know, I want to go and make sure he's okay and give him a cuddle. And so, yeah, the, the, the two big factors that have affected me is just time and sleep. And urgent has a different meaning when you're a parent because, like, oh, this deadline's due? Okay, cool. But If I you know, just put this kid in a drawer for three hours, he will die. I can't just do that. I need to, you know, everything kid related is urgent and then everything else is secondary to that. So, how long do you reckon until you start getting outputs from the baby and it's not just about him not dying? I'll tell you, he gives me output several times a day.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not super useful, but、uh, he does produce quite a lot. I'm, I'm a little bit less worried about him dying now. Now I'm worried about him wrecking stuff. So, <laughs> I have a lot of board games and. If I'm not paying attention and I'm looking after the baby, he will be rummaging through them looking for stuff that he can choke on. Oh, wow. So is he like two now? No, no, he's、uh, 11 months now. Is he walking yet?、Uh, he has taken steps,、mm -hmm. but he doesn't realize that's a mode of transportation. It's like a party trick that he can do. <laughs> so he will take steps, but he doesn't use that to get around. He'll like, do some steps, be like, cool, I'm done. Now, if I actually want to get somewhere, I'm going to crawl. <laughs> okay. It'd be like if you owned a car but didn't realize it could go from one place to another. You're just like, what a cool car. I'm glad I have that. Okay, now back to walking. Can you work while you have him next to you?、Uh, so I just, and I mean, literally in the last 48 hours, bought a little iPad Pro with an attached kind of keyboard. And that means that I can. But up until then, I've had like my, my computer desk that I'm sitting at now. And this room is the only room in the house that's not even remotely baby proofed. It's full of. Looking around, I've got, a, I've got a paper cutter here. Like, it's just a big blade. I've got、uh, bits of board game just like on a bottom shelf.、Um, yeah, this, this room is completely, completely non baby proof. There's electrical cables just running around the place.、Hmm. That's another thing. When you have a kid, you need to look at everything from the point of like, if I was suicidal, could I kill myself on this right now? <laughs> And if so, you can't have it within reach of the baby because there, there's a board game. I don't know if it was ever made, it was just a concept. It was very clever. It was a two player game. One player plays the parent trying to keep the baby alive, and they win if the baby's alive at the end of the third round. And the other player is the baby, and they win if they die, die. within three rounds. <laughs> <Wow> . And that's absolutely what it's like. It's, it's like he's aggressively trying to damage himself. And so while I'm looking after him, I can't be in this room because then he freaks out that I'm not around. And so I can't get any work done. But now I've got the iPad.、Uh, the script I was saying I finished the other day, I did that on the iPad while looking after the baby. And I was very, very happy. It's, a, it's been a significant quality of life improvement.、Mm -hmm. So you can still write? And I suppose you're writing erotica most of the time?、Uh, yeah, I, I write erotica two to three days a month. And when I do that, I really like hand the baby off and lock myself in a room and just work for 12 hours straight.、Mm -hmm. Because the reason I'm able to do it three days a month is if I'm just in the zone and doing absolutely nothing else, I have quite a lot of output. But if I have to stop and start, I can't really write erotica. So that one I can't write on the iPad. I mean, I can take the iPad to a coffee shop and just write for 10 hours there. but... 
that one is not something I can juggle while holding a baby. Has it ever happened to you that you closed yourself in and, and wanted to write, but you couldn't? You had a writer's block or you weren't concentrated enough or... So I've been listening to a podcast called Cortex lately, which I've, I've really been enjoying. Oh, it. I love that one. Isn't yeah, it great? My favorite. Yeah, that is that is my current favorite podcast. Um, I just listened through the entire backlog in the last year. And that, that, this is why I got an iPad Pro. If you listen to Cortex, you understand why I now <laughs> own an iPad Pro and an Apple Watch. Like this is, this is directly one-to-one -one for me listening to that show. And CGP Grey is one of the hosts and he's a writer. And he, he describes it as a bounce rate, which I really like. So it's not so much writer's block. Uh, he calls it a bounce rate. When you sit down to work and you just can't and you bounce, like you, you just, no matter what you do, you can't hit the work. You keep bouncing off and having to do something else. And he says it's, it's you know, everyone has a bounce rate. No matter what your job, no matter what you're doing, there's days when you just get there and you just can't get started. Or maybe, maybe not everyone, but definitely creative professionals. There's days where you just can't get the work done. And so that's, I think, what we call writer's block. Um, I like the term bounce rate more. My bounce rate is pretty low because I'm only doing it a few days a month. And if you only have to do something two or three days a month to make the majority of your income, you're pretty incentivized to do it. So about 5% of the time, I will spend a day just feeling what like I'm hitting my head against the wall and just not getting anything done. And so I have a pretty low bounce rate, but it does happen. And when that happens, I just need to schedule another day in that month to write. Mm -hmm. um, or, or more and more, I'm trying to get ahead. So I'm, I, I update my Patreon twice a month with 10,000 words for each update. So I write 20,000 words a month. But I found if I'm doing three days a month, I can do about 25 to 30,000 words. And so over time, my plan is to work a month or two ahead so that when something happens, when there's an emergency, when I have that bounce, I'm not yeah. falling behind. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I haven't really heard about erotica before I started hearing about it from you or your podcast. Okay. You, you can admit to it. It's okay. <laughs> We're all friends here. There's no shame. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, how big is the market of written erotica? Because I could never imagine someone doing it full time. So the, the tricky thing about uh, porn, and I include what I, what I make in that category, is that The market's huge in that most people in some form watch or read porn. The number of people who will pay for it is very low. So a lot of people listening to this will be like, oh, I watch porn all the time. Of course you can make a living off it. Yeah, but how, how often do you actually pay for porn? Mm. It's really rare that people pay for erotica, pay for porn. And then uh, to flip it back the other way again, when people do pay, they pay a lot. So it's a really large market a really small paying audience and a really large amount of money that that audience pays. Mm -hmm. So I have something like 100 or 200 Patreon followers, which if you know much about Patreon is very small. A lot of people will have in the thousands or, or the tens of thousands to make a living. Uh, no, maybe not tens of thousands, but definitely the hundreds, if not thousands, to have any chance of making a living. If people don't know, Patreon is a crowdfunding support website. It's a little bit like Kickstarter, but instead of being a one-off project, it's recurring month to month. Most people, when they have a Patreon, their minimum pledge level is a dollar or two dollars. My mm. minimum is five dollars. And to get the really good stuff, you have to pay ten dollars. To get five dollars, you just get what I put online for free. Like that's really just support the author and get it a bit early. If you want exclusive stuff, it's ten dollars a month. Uh, sorry, not even a month. It's ten dollars for each update. So if I update twice a month, which I try to do, that's twenty dollars a month. That's the equivalent of 20 patrons for a non kind of erotic based uh, Patreon. And so, the, yeah, the, the, it's an interesting question. The market is large. The paying market is small. But when I sell a book on Amazon, I sell it for $3, even if it's only a few thousand words long, whereas normally to, to charge $3 for something, you'd have to be 10, 20,000 words long. $3? Okay, because I've only seen books that started like 10, probably. Yeah, but th those are for full novels, minor short stories. And minor short stories in that if you read it out loud, you would have read two of them If, if you're reading them at the same time as we were recording this podcast. Mine, mine are short stories, like mm -hmm. three to 5,000 words. So essentially you're writing for your audience. I thought you had like custom requests from people. Yeah, so I do take commissions. Um, they take me a little while to get back to. So generally because I'm writing three days a month or two days a month, I write whatever I'm in the mood to write. But for a very large amount of money, I will write whatever you want me to write. But I still have to be in the right mood to do that. So... It'll, it'll take me a few months to get back to people, but when I do, they're, they're generally very happy with it. So people will send me a 
uh, a fantasy that they have or some elements that they would like to see in an erotica story and I will weave them into a story. As I mentioned earlier, I'm really obsessive about structure. So story structure is one of the things I've always been fascinated by. And so I take these elements or this fantasy that they have and I make it into an actual story with a protagonist and goals and and structure. Mm-hmm. And people people really enjoy that because they get they get all of their kinks and they get the heat. But it's in a story that you know has a beginning, middle, end. And how large portion of your audience is women? So <laughs> this is this is a this is a good question. Um, there, there's kind of a, a, a rule which is that. Women don't pay for video, men pay for video, but men don't pay for writing. Women pay for writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on Amazon, that's certainly true. The vast majority of erotica purchases on Amazon are women. But my Patreon, because it's all based on the free sites. So I put all my stuff online on the free sites, which is mostly men reading it because men don't pay for written erotica. And then they see my Patreon. They think, oh, I can get some exclusive stuff. So most of my Patreon supporters are men. Not all, but I'd say like 70 to 90%. And okay. most of my Amazon purchasing audience are women. And again, I'd say mm-hmm. like 60 to 90% there. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because women function more by their imagination and men tend to be more visual. So it made sense to me to consider your readers women. But at the same time, I wouldn't think that women would go and find you on Patreon. and Exactly, yeah. So, so w- women tend to buy their smut from Erotica and men tend to get it online for free. And if you get it online for free, you'll see the link to my Patreon. And so just by nature of exposure to what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. men are more likely to be Patreon supporters. And men particularly, I don't think I've ever had a woman commission a story. The vast majority of my commissions are by men. Really? And I don't know if that's because they have on average higher disposable incomes and I charge through the roof or if it's because, yeah, I don't even even know why that is, but um, I've never thought about it before. Yeah, the majority of people who commissioning stories are men. It might be men buying it for the woman, no? Uh, it might be. I, I based on based on the synopsises they send me, I don't think that's very common, but it absolutely could be. Okay. I don't know. So Patreon, I suppose, is your main source of income right now. Yeah, pa- Patreon, I'd say, is a good fifty percent of my income, if not more. And what makes the other half? Uh, it's a combination of commissions. So I try to do a few thousand words of commissions each month. Um, I don't always get to it, but when I do, it, it's it's nice to get that money. And then the rest of my income is from board games. So I run a small board game company called Jellybean Games, and I'm now on salary. As well as that, I get a percentage of uh, of games sold that I designed, which are my royalties. And is it two board game companies or just one? Uh, just the one. We, we were seriously considering starting a second one, and we got all the branding. We actually made a game for the second one. Then we decided to instead focus on what we were finding success in. And so we ended up not starting a second board game company, mm-hmm. although I do have a long list of designs that were ready for it if we ever had. I was actually checking Kickstarter and I saw you released about six board games over there. Is that possible? So since we started, which was in March 2016, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine board games wow. on Kickstarter. That's a lot. How do you come up with so many titles and ideas for them? Uh, the, the, the issue is never coming up with the ideas. The issue is executing them right. So mm-hmm. uh, whatever I'm most engaged in is what I, I think about. So I started writing erotica because I was reading erotica. It's, it's a it's an art form that I very much enjoy. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh, here's what I would do. Here's an idea. Here's an idea. Um, back when SJ and I together, I got into playing board games. And as I was playing, I was like, oh, I have an idea of what you could do. And now that I work in board games, I spend a lot of time playing board games, which means I come up with a lot of ideas. So now, now I'm in the, the fortunate position of being able to sift through the ideas and only try to make the very best ones. And yeah, no, my, my list of board games to make is much, much longer than nine, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and similarly, the more sitcoms I'm watching, the more ideas I have for writing sitcoms, which is why I really try to immerse myself in whatever I'm doing, because that's, that's how my inspiration strikes. And how long does it usually take to release one title, start to finish? Oh, start to finish. Okay, so I'll come up with a concept and often I'll put that concept in my ideas drawer and it just won't come out for months and months and months until it's had kind of time to stew or or brew in my head. Uh, Once I start actively working on it, I'll have a first draft within maybe a week or two, like a, a, a playable version of the game that I can test and be like, okay, is there anything here or is this an idea that was good on paper but just horribly disastrous when I when I try to actually play it? Uh, once I've decided that it works and it's good, I try to get to an, what, what will be as close as I can to the final form. And that can take anywhere between 
two and six months, like just to keep on developing and iterating and, and working on it until I'm like, okay, this doesn't break and it's fun. Now, is it as much fun as it can be? And that, that can take a long time or that can be a little time where I'm like, yep, I've tried all the things and this is absolutely as much fun as it can possibly be. So between idea and ready to start getting art is generally about a year, I would say. Mm-hmm. So like the idea that I started working on uh, two months ago was something I came up with a few months before that. And I'm only two months in and I know that I've got to make big sweeping changes before that'll be ready. Once we're ready to start getting art, we find an artist, we give them a brief, we get a few sample pieces of art and they start work on it. And this one depends on the size of the game. So one game we've been working on for a full year and we're maybe a third or, or, or a quarter of the way through the art because it's a big game that's going to need a lot of art. One game, we sent the stuff to the artist and within three months he was completely done. So uh, that that can take anywhere between three and 18, you know, 18 months, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even two years, depending on the size of the game. Then once we have enough art, we take it to Kickstarter. The Kickstarter takes about a month to run, another month to get the money. Once we have the money, we finalize everything, which takes between, say, two and five months. We hit print. It takes them two months to print and then two months to put it on a boat. Or let's say a month. Let's say six weeks to get it on a boat mm-hmm. over to us. We send it out to backers. That takes another month. And then once it's landed at backers, then we can start getting it ready for retail. And about three to four months later, it'll arrive in retail. (laughs) So from the very, very first idea to when it actually gets to retail, you're looking at at about two years minimum. Mm. That's a long time. But it all sounds like it's a smooth ride. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nothing ever goes wrong. It's it's perfect. (laughs) No, we we throw out a lot of ideas. Uh, It's the worst when we throw it out when we've gotten to the art stage because by that point we've put some serious money into it. And then we're like, great, now we have all this really specific art for a game that won't get made. Yeah, and I suppose you pay the artist in full. Yeah, well, we have to, yeah, we, we pay the artists for the art that they're doing. And then if we cancel, you know, we don't pay them for future art unless they've started on it, in which case we, we pay for everything that they've done. But yeah, we try, we desperately try not to cancel stuff when it gets to the art stage, but it has happened about three or four times now. So you're not going to be one of those stories of when people pay for Kickstarter and not ever get the product. Hopefully not. <laughs> we are doing all that we can to make sure that's not the case. Um, uh, no, I, th- I think no matter what, people would get the Kickstarter. Like even if I had to take out a loan, even if I had to, you know, sell the rights to another company and they fulfill it in exchange for the game, we would always make sure that our Kickstarter backers got the game. So, what do you think that you have Kickstarter figured out by now? Is it something that is still unpredictable, or it's very unpredictable? Yeah, part of the part of the reason that is the case is that Kickstarter is changing so much. So, I don't know if, if either of you two follow board games, but board games is is currently in its golden age. Like this is the best time in history to be a board gamer. In, in 1996, there were maybe like 200, 300 games released. In 2018, there were 5,000. And there's so many games, people have so many options that it's really hard to break out from the pack. And it's a little bit like running a podcast. Like if you started podcasting in 2003, you were one of the 10 podcasts out there. And if people wanted to listen to podcasts, they were going to listen to you. If you start a podcast now, you really have to work to stand out. Like you can't just start a podcast and expect the audience to come. You have to have something that's unique, whether that's, you know, whether that's the premise or whether that's the the topic or whether that's the dynamic between the hosts or whatever it is, you really have to do something different. And board games are very much in that arena. And so this year we actually canceled two Kickstarters. Uh, For the first time ever, we canceled Kickstarter and then we canceled another one because we got a little bit complacent. We were like, hey, people like our games. People know that we make good games. So we'll just put it out there and people will buy it. And people were like, ah, look, it's fine. But there's a lot of other stuff right now I could be putting my money towards. Why would I choose you? And so in the example of Village Pillage, we launched that in, I believe, March and ended up cancelling it and relaunching in April. When we relaunched in April, we added little wooden turnips because it's a turnip-based economy game. And people really fell in love with these turnips and that, that was our most successful Kickstarter of the year because we had these little wooden turnips. But the first launch, we were just like, it's a good game. And being a good game is simply not good enough these days. Mm-hmm. In the same way as being a good podcast, you can have a good podcast. Why listen to this over 100 other good podcasts? Right. You're calling it the golden era, 
but at the same time you're describing it as one of the most difficult times to get a board game out it's the golden era for consumers <laughs> not for <laughs> all right not for companies uh no for companies it's a really tumultuous time which is fine like that, that's just the nature of it uh but it, it also means that if you hit you can hit really big if you have a successful board game today you will sell literally mm -hmm. a thousand times more than you would from a really successful board game in in 1999 and how often do you play board games yourself i try to play as much as i can so roxy and i my husband and i play board games when we get the chance uh it's one of those things that having a baby makes it really you can't hold a baby and play a board game because yeah. all they want to do is touch what their parents <laughs> are touching and then put it in their mouth and for board yeah. games Uh, I don't know if you know much about board games or babies, but that's a bad combination. <laughs> um, I play, I have, a, I have a prototype night every two weeks at my house. So a bunch of friends come over with prototypes. We play through mine and theirs. Uh -huh. uh, Roxy and I try to play board games at least once a week. We don't always hit that. Sometimes we manage to play more. And now that Henry's in daycare, I try to really during the day get work done because I'm able to work without a baby to play with. But it's a, also a really good time to play board games because there's no baby around. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so I personally have three revenue sources when it comes to board games. Obviously, we have the Kickstarters. Uh, when you back a Kickstarter, we get money from that and we use that to make the game fulfill it. And sometimes we have enough left over to pay ourselves or keep the company running or you know invest in the next game. We are currently in retail. So if you go to most retail stores in the US, you can find our games these days, which is great for me because that's how I got into gaming, by going to stores and seeing what was there. As well as that, we're in Barnes and Noble, the big Uh, chain of bookstores so mm -hmm. lady in the tiger is one of our games it's a really really pretty game and you can go into barnes and nobles all across the u.s and find that game there and so our two as a company our two main revenue sources are kickstarter and retail and we use the kickstarter funds to print excess copies which we then sell in retail the difference being that we get the full price of the kickstarter copies and a tiny proportion of the retail because it has to go through the whole chain and then i personally do a lot of freelance development so larger companies who have got a board game and they're like, look, this is not quite there. I use the same skills that I've built up over the time working on my own games and working on Jellybean mm -hmm. games to freelance with them and help improve their games or come up with ideas or play tests for them, all that kind of stuff. Mike, do you, do you play board games? Have we ever played board games together? Well, Adele is really not a big fan of board games. No. She's kind of like SJ. <laughs> I do like board games, but I don't get to play them very often. It, it's, it's funny you say that. Uh, the first game that we released through Jelly Bean Game was called Scuttle. Mm -hmm. And on her most recent uh, podcast, No Feeling is Final, SJ talks about when she was having a really dark, uh, depressive time. Her and her boyfriend Graham went away to a, a just like a holiday home, essentially, like a friend's place out in the country. And they just played cards for like two weeks straight. And she didn't mention this on the show because it wasn't relevant, but the card game that she played for about two weeks straight was Scuttle. And so mm -hmm. I got this message from SJ being like, Peter, Scuttle is fantastic. Like, I've played <laughs> this. She's probably played Scuttle more than I have at this point, and that's really saying something. <laughs> that's awesome. And so the, the games that we make through Jellybean Games are not for, like, hardcore gamers. So they're actually different to the games that I play. When I play a game, I want to sit down and play something for, like, two to three hours that mm -hmm. makes my brain burn. Whereas the games that we play are games that are designed to be played for kids, uh, sorry, with kids and by kids. Uh, yeah. And so ours are much lighter games, or adults as well. Like we, we, we hope that everyone likes them. We're trying to be the Pixar of board games, essentially. But yeah, SJ, uh, avowed board game hater, <laughs> very much enjoyed the first release that we made. And so, yeah, if, if you're not into board games, check out Jelly Bean Games. It might surprise okay. you. <laughs> so is there like a gateway drug into board games? I love Bang, for example. That's my favorite one. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's a whole category of board games that are referred to as gateway games. And Jelly Bean is very much in that category. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, back to podcasts. Do you want to uncover something about your upcoming one? So, again, to reference Cortex, uh, on Cortex, they talk a lot about side projects and this idea that for them, particularly, they need something that's not their main focus to like blow off steam with. And they talk about the relative value of a side project. So if you have a full-time job working as a desk jockey, you know, doing admin or whatever, your side project might be starting a small business. And then if that business ever takes off, it will become your main project. But even then, they firmly maintain you still need a side project, something that is not high pressure in the way that your main thing is. So for me right now, erotica and board games are my two like main things that I do and they suck up all my energy. And being honest with Max has always been a side project. Like that, that's something that I do for fun, for me, for reasons that aren't necessarily money. And 
I recently, like listening to that, I realized that what a hole in my life there was because I didn't have any side projects. So I've started, again, writing sitcoms, which is very much a side project for me right now. I'd like to make that my full-time thing, but I'm nowhere near that. And I realized that I spent a lot of time just with my family, like either alone in this room or hanging out with my baby and my husband. And my only socialization is board game related. I will either go to a playtest night or I'll have people over for prototypes. And I didn't really have any personal connections outside of that. And so my brother and sister and I have started a side project and we don't know if it's going to go anywhere. It might never see the light of day, but it's an excuse to hang out with my brother and sister as often as possible. Mm-hmm. And it is a, uh, it, it's a, it's a podcast for the three of us where we're answering trivia questions. And so each episode, one of us is the host and the other two are competing for points. And we're going to keep a tally over every episode we ever make. So uh, we'll rotate hosts and eventually there'll be a winner, I guess, if we ever stop, but <laughs> there'll be points in the hundreds by the, you know, by the 15th episode. <laughs> okay. I like the idea. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we even have a name for it yet. It's just, it's just a little fun side project. Are all of you in the same location? No, I'm in Toronto and my brother and sister are both in Brisbane and they actually lived with each other up until a few months ago. And so as soon as they moved away from each other, we started this podcast. It would have been so much more convenient <laughs> if they'd all been in the same place. But um, yeah, so just like I'm Skyping with you guys internationally, I Skype with them internationally and we, one of us has a bunch of questions prepared and yeah, we, we hope it works. I mean, that, that's the joy of a side project too. It doesn't, it doesn't have to hit KPIs. We don't have to get X downloads within the first X months. Mm-hmm. It's just a thing that we're doing for fun and we're not going to have a timeline. We're not going to have a deadline. We're not going to have a schedule. We're just going to make it when we feel like making it, put it out there. And it's just a nice excuse for the three of us to, to bounce ideas off each other and have fun and laugh and learn things about the world. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. That's how we feel about this podcast, actually. Yeah, it's it's just a I, I don't know what your relationship is, but it's just a nice way to connect with someone. I've I found for me particularly, if I don't have a reason to interact with someone, they will kind of just drop off my radar. And it's not it's not malicious, but like since SG and I stopped making being lost with my ex, I've talked to her maybe seven times in the last year. Uh, whereas we used to be talking every day because we were getting ready for the podcast and editing the podcast. And if you're in that interaction with someone, you naturally talk about other things as well. And yeah. so, yeah, uh, an excuse, if, if you're ever trying to make friends, my advice would be find an excuse to interact with them regularly. And that, that's why like people like soccer clubs or trivia nights at the pub or having a baby together. As <laughs> uh, <laughs> a reason that you really have to interact regularly, you'll find yourself building a bond no matter what. Like so many people marry people they work with because it is an excuse to see them every day. And over that time you build up shared jokes and a connection and you bond. Yeah. Yep. Damn. That's a pretty wise thing to say. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that before. It's something I think about a lot because I've moved so many times. I've lived in so many different places. I've had to make friends. And so again, I like structure. I really kind of broke down what it is to make a friend and how it happens. And there's a movie called I Love You Man with Jason Segel and Paul Rudd. And I was blown away when I watched that because they'd taken the system I'd kind of mentally worked out and turned it into a film. <laughs> But it's just a really nice little breakdown of how you make friends with someone. That's an excellent point to finish on. So to wrap up, you want to tell us where can people find you? So best way to find me is just Twitter, Peter C. Hayward. That's uh, Peter C-H-A-Y-W-A-R-D. I have some other websites. They're all horribly out of date. But if you go to peterchayward.com slash about, that is kind of a, a brief summary of what I'm about. Uh, beard.blue theoretically has all my projects, but it really doesn't. And then <laughs> jellybean.games is where you can find all of the games I've been talking about. If you want to check out my erotica, look for Pan. P-A-N is my pen name. I'm mm-hmm. on Literotica. I'm on mcstories.com. I'm trying to put it myself up other places, but those are the two main places where you can find my work. Okay. And if I'm reading this, you really want to give me money, uh, patreon.com slash pan who writes. Mm-hmm. That's patreon.com slash pan who writes. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thank you so much for making the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Hopefully we uncovered some of the more interesting questions about you. And it was great for me, at least, to get an update on what your life is about right now. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that was, uh, hope that was what you're looking for. Definitely. It's the sounds of our lives. So that was Freelancers. There is a link to the Freelancer podcast in the description below. I hope you enjoyed that. I would like to say we'll be back soon, but uh, it's been two years since the last update and this one is six months later than I intended to put it up. So 
don't hold your breath. If you hold your breath, you are absolutely going to pass out because it's definitely going to be more than like four minutes or whatever the human lung capacity is. So please, for the good of your health, for the good of the people around you, for the good of your family and those who love you, do not hold your breath in anticipation for the next podcast. And thanks for continuing to subscribe to this podcast, despite the enormous lack of updates. It's actually, the podcast accidentally went down for like literally 48 hours and we got something like three emails. So it's nice to know that people are still listening to the archives. If you miss the show as much as I do, go back and listen to the archives. I can't. I cannot listen to the archives because... As you can imagine, I have grown and changed as a person over the last two years. And Peter of three slash four years ago, when we used to update regularly, oh, I do not agree with that guy on much. And it's really painful. Even even the non-painful episodes, I'm still like, oh, Peter, why are you being such an unpleasant person to be around? So I cannot listen to the archives, especially because I know that that is the last record of me in this format. Like... If we never do another episode, I am permanently immortalized as that version of Pedo, which is a very sad thought for me. I don't like being represented inaccurately, and that is in no way an accurate representation of me now. It's a very, very accurate representation of me at the time, but listening to it now is, is painful. So I can't listen to the archives, but you're welcome to. We have many episodes, some of them are even quite good, and I really do miss it. That's my stance. That's my hard stance on the podcast. I miss doing it. I miss SJ, and I miss you listener if this was interesting to you if you enjoyed this let me know because sj and i do other stuff and if you would rather your feed was completely uncluttered unless we did new episodes that's fine just let me know but if you're like look if we're not getting new episodes we might as well get little tidbits like sj and i are paying for the hosting either way so if you would like this kind of sporadic here's a thing it's not being as honest with my ex but it's a different thing let me know Send an email. We still have contact at being honest with my i think it's the email address we still have that up and running and it still comes through to me so let me know if you want more episodes like this where it's like interviews I've done unrelated to being honest with my ex or stuff SJ's been doing unrelated to being honest with my ex or just general life updates. I don't know how invested people are in our lives versus the show because while the two are very intertwined, an episode of being honest with my ex is very different to nine and a half minutes of Peter rambling into a microphone. So if you're only in it for the former, that's absolutely fine. Just let us know. But if, if you'd like the latter in lieu of the former, send a message, email me, tweet us. I don't know, whatever other methods we have for getting in contact, use those and let me know if you want this kind of update or absolute dead silence unless we happen to do another episode of Being Honest with Max. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to, man, I used to know this off by heart. Don't subscribe to us on iTunes, leave a review and tell your friends, Peter is my favorite son.